Hello and welcome back to Culture at a Crossroads. I'm your host, David Mann. We continue to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. We do that by chatting with those at the forefront of change in our country. And, you know, we're going to be, again, kind of riding by the seat of our pants because we have something current. And I keep saying who's coming up next week. And I've been wrong the last couple because we wanted to cover Team Canada soccer last week. That was still relatively hot. And, of course, big news story over the last few weeks has been Afghanistan. So we are going to get into a brief little analysis of what's taken place with Dana Lewis. He was in the podcast back in season two, if you remember. We chatted about the Middle East and Russia. He was stationed in both places for several years as a foreign correspondent. And he has some understanding of Afghanistan. A lot of people don't. So we're going to get to that here in a second. Dana Lewis, thank you for joining me again on the show. So appreciate your commitment to help out another Fanshawe graduate and to just help us understand what's taking place in the Middle East that has really taken the world by storm. Well, it's good to talk to you again, David. Dana, just off the off the bat, what's your what's your reaction of what's transpiring? Well, I think it's tragic. I mean, I think it's tragic for Americans and Biden's, you know, foreign policy is I think a black mark on his presidency and it's tragic. Biden just seemed to choose between staying or going and there was no in between. And uh, I I think that it was just a bad decision. And the road was paved by former president Donald Trump, who entered into negotiations with the Taliban, who said essentially, you know, don't attack American troops and we'll get out and we'll get out by the by the September 11th deadline. And uh, it's just a mistake. It's really a mistake. Why do you think Biden has painted this in such binaries? I think it's politically expedient. I think that he somehow felt that if he were to go back on President Trump's promise and pledge, that he would have to go deeper uh, into the conflict in Afghanistan, that if they stayed, and the Taliban started attacking Americans, he'd have to send in more American troops. And I think he just thought the the best political solution was to get the hell out. And I I think it's, you know, not visionary in any way. I, I just can't imagine this whole thing that 20 years of allied commitment from Germany, from France, from the UK, from Canada, you know, trillions of dollars to try and stand up Afghanistan just fell to pieces so quickly and tragically. Do you think that these other allied countries were solely excluded from Biden's decision in the first place? Well, they say so. I mean, they say that America acted alone and acted pretty, you know, in a, in a unilateral way in its direct negotiations with the Taliban in Doha, Qatar. I mean, how naive is it? Really, let's come down to what what is this thing all about, right? 9-11 happens. The Taliban are sheltering al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. They're asked to give up bin Laden. They don't do it. And the decision is made by then-President George Bush to go in and remove not only al-Qaeda, which, you know, attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, uh, but to also remove the Taliban because there was no dealing with them and that they're an extreme... Uh, organization and that they're not suddenly going to reform and be a different Taliban. And, you know, I mean, that that's really what this comes down to. And now today, today, David, you see uh, the, the former chief of security for, from Osama bin Laden now with Al-Qaeda now re-entering uh, Afghanistan in a celebratory way. I mean, 
the, the hotbed for terror in Central Asia is alive and, and well in a big danger to the West, and it's about to start all over again. You say that it's worse than when you were there on the ground. Well, I think it's worse because in, in 2001, you still had a lot of militias that were holding out against the Taliban. You had the Tajiks, the, the Uzbeks, the, the, uh, the Lion of the Panjshir, uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, uh, holding out parts of Afghanistan from the Taliban, the Taliban's ability to retake the entire country. And that was really important because, look, this is Central Asia. So two weeks before 9-11, Al-Qaeda moved in and attacked uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud in his house, they blew him up pretending to be a, a, a news crew. And then we know that they were going to expand into Central Asia and push north through Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and all of the stands. They represented a real threat to all of Central Asia. This is just not about uh, Afghanistan. There's a lot at stake here. You were in Masu's house, if I'm not mistaken, when you were covering this. Yeah, I mean, we were... I was based in Moscow for NBC. I was sent to uh, Dushanbe, Tajikistan, the moment that 9/11 happened, because we knew that they were going to the Americans would invade Afghanistan. And I crossed in a Mi-8 old Russian helicopter uh, on a Northern Alliance gun run into the Panjshir Valley, and I landed uh, not deeper into the Panjshir Valley near Bagram Air Base, but they kind of took a right-hand turn and they landed. Uh, that is where the Northern Alliance was based. And there was this yellow house uh, on the edge of the compound. And with NBC, I said, look, we really want to take that house. Like, we want to set up there. And the foreign minister for the Northern Alliance, who is now high ranking, and he's still in Kabul, representing the Afghan government and dealing with the Taliban, was a guy named, uh, you know, Abdullah, Abdullah, Abdullah. And he said, okay, you can have part of the house, but you cannot go inside. And so we took the balcony of this yellow kind of villa. It wasn't very posh, but it was a villa. And we, we came to understand that there was another part of the house that was completely blown apart. Wow. And that was the room where Ahmed Shah Massoud was, was murdered and assassinated. And that was just a, a playing piece in the chess match that the, the Taliban have been playing ever since. Indeed. So what about the backstory on, on Pakistan? You know, it's pretty well documented that they are funding the Taliban. Why hasn't America and the allied nations, you know, tightened the clamps on these guys? You know, that's a good question. And I think that the Pakistan's army and the Pakistan ISI, the Pakistani intelligence arm, uh, has always been supporting the Taliban and they have given them shelter in the northern frontier of Pakistan, allowing them to hit and run, uh, including Canadian troops that were in Helmand. Um, and the 10th Mountain Division uh, up on the border with Pakistan, the 101st Airborne. And how do you fight an insurgency that can take shelter over the border in Pakistan the next day, refuel, rearm, and hit you again and again and again? And that's why this war has gone on 20 years. So why didn't they confront Pakistan? Pakistan was playing a double game with the Allies. I mean, to some degree, allowing the Americans to use forward operating bases because they couldn't easily get into Afghanistan with fuel and food and ammunition. So the Pakistanis would allow the Americans to use some of the forward operating bases. So did Uzbekistan, so did Tajikistan. But then at the same time, you know, they were 
in support of Al-Qaeda. They probably didn't want to take it on. So what do you think the the next several months in the, into the fall is going to look like in Afghanistan once the troops of America finally pull out for good? Pretty dark, you know, pretty dark. What are we talking, 37 million people? Um, Nine-tenths of the economy is driven by what the Allies brought from, from NATO countries in terms of the funding. So economic collapse, famine, which has already started, civil unrest. The Taliban have, have bitten off probably more than they can chew. And you'll see parts of the country, again, splinter and militias begin to crop up. They're already, the uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud's family is already defending the north and saying they won't allow the Taliban to take parts of the north, the Panjshir Valley again. And I, I think that you'll see the Uzbeks do the same. And um, they're, they're in for a, a very tough ride. They were never a government anyway. And they, they, they never nation built uh, in Afghanistan. And the people will suffer. You know, women will be deprived of education. Uh, they'll be back in their homes. Music will be banned. Kite flying, you know, of all things will be banned again. Um, just a lot of suffering. And they'll turn the country back into this kind of feudal state that, you know, when we wandered through it 20 years ago, looked like you were traveling back in time hundreds of years. And that's, that's what it will be. But Al-Qaeda will come back. And now there is ISIS-K there that carried out the suicide bombing on the Kabul airport. Uh, so it, it will be a, a terrific, tragically terrific breeding ground for terror again. And it's just a matter of time before that terror reaches the West. Well, that's, that's scary. I sound could pretty you? positive now, David, don't I? But I mean, yeah. I think it's very sad because there was a moment, more than just a moment, there were great moments of hope for Afghanistan. I think that Biden, I mean, Trump, you know, he's, Trump's foreign policy was just completely just self-serving and, you know, no, no vision of American democracy or foreign policy or, I mean, Biden came talking about restoring America uh, internationally and America's influence and promoting democracy around the world. And what has he just done that doesn't serve Western interests? in so many ways. You know, I wish I could be more positive about it, but I know Afghans. Some of them have fled in the last week. My former producer just got out with his family. He's sitting in Qatar, hoping that some country will take him. Um, there's a lot of people that are stuck there. You know, he's, he's a good news story, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are stuck there that will be dragged out of their homes um, and killed. Other, other young men will be forced to join the Taliban um, and, and sign up to their army. Um, it's, you know, it's Afghanistan's in for a lot of suffering. And so is Central Asia uh, by default. It's horrible. So what are some of those strides of progress that you and your friends in Afghanistan saw that perhaps President Biden just did not? First of all, and foremost was freedom, that you could go to school again. The children could be educated in one of the most illiterate countries on the planet. Women were allowed out of their homes again. They were allowed into government. They were allowed into media. They were allowed to go to university. I mean, all the stuff that you take for granted, right? And th that I take for granted. Um, tremendous um, infrastructure works, you know, dams, educational facilities. Standing up that army of 300,000 took years. I mean, that was a monstrous undertaking by the, by the allies. Um, not monstrous, bad monsters, but I mean, uh, you know, tr tremendous to, to train the Afghans, to get them to come together 
uh, and to work together, to stand up an air force, to build an air force, to equip them, to supply them, to train them ethically, to deal with deep corruption in Afghanistan, which they never dealt with, uh, has, and that's always been a problem. But you know, a year and a half ago, when these peace negotiations started in Doha, this is not a cowardly army. I mean, Afghans have fought, and they know how to fight, and they know how to die, unfortunately. But I think that they believed uh, that it was going to come apart, and that they better start seeking an alternative way. And that's why they're saying that a lot of shadow governments were set up with the Taliban. Local mm -hmm. governors had already made their deals. So that's why you, you saw, you know, province by province fall so quickly in those two-week periods when the Americans thought this was going to last at least two years, right? So all of this was going on in the background. Bad intelligence, bad planning. And going just going back to Trump's negotiations for a moment, did the allies, allied nations challenge him at the time for only talking to the Taliban and not bringing the Afghan government into those? Certainly there were concerns raised and the allies, the UK and, and France and others were unhappy with it. Uh, and the U.S. just proceeded. You know, this was America first policy under President Trump. Um, and they just proceeded. But um, I think a lot of people held out hope that the Amer look, the Americans have forces all over the world. They're in North Africa. They're in the Middle East. They're, they're in, you know, in South Korea. They're, they're everywhere. Right. And very big troop numbers. Keeping 2,500 to 3,500 troops in Afghanistan with a few thousand NATO allies to kind of just reinforce the the Afghan government and the Afghan army keep training them, keep helping them. Um, it wouldn't have taken much effort. And mm. I, I think that that's the real travesty. I mean, why did they do this? Because yeah. they thought they could and, and they couldn't. It fell apart and crumbled. Um, and then look, I mean, Amer Americans left holding in the last two weeks a little sliver of geography called the Kabul airport, asking the Taliban, their enemies for 20 years, could they have a humanitarian corridor to the Afghan airport? Um, being on the receiving end of, an, of, of these ISIS suicide bombers, which was tragic for the, you know, the 13 U.S. Marines that were killed there and the others injured. Just, I mean, what, what a, I don't want to use that word either on your podcast, but I mean, what, what a terrible show. Ah, yeah, measly way to go out and to lose American troops, like you say. The whole point of Trump's negotiations was to be able to go out cleanly and that didn't come through either, did it? Maybe one thing that he had... Bad planning, and uh, Biden thought that September, coming up on the on the 20th anniversary, that he brought the troops home. He took them out. It's it's sloganism, but I don't think he'll be able to boast that now. I, I, this has gone so badly that I, I think that this will be a dark stain uh, on his presidency for the rest of his term. Yeah. Do you think this is comparable to anything that the Americans have done for, uh, as far as foreign policy in the past in the last 50 years? It's right up there at the top. Well, you know, I mean, obviously Vietnam and the withdrawal from Vietnam where people were clinging to helicopters, getting out. And Biden said that this was not going to be any kind of a, any kind of a Vietnam, uh, but it sure, it sure looked like it. I think the troops themselves, look, Canadian troops have a lot to be proud of. The way that they served in the South in Helmand in one of the most dangerous areas. U.S. troops, U.K. troops, so many different countries, Australia. Everybody contributed to, to all of that. But, you know, what do we have to show for it? And I was talking to a lot of U.S. vets this week, guys that I met in the mountains overlooking Pakistan who were under attack and who lost friends. And uh, so many of them re have returned to the U.S. Like U.S. vets from Vietnam suffering PTSD and, 
the suicides are something like, you know, 22 a day. They use this number 22 U.S. vets are lost. It's basically one and a half times the national average in terms of suicides in America. And I think that up until now, they say, this is what they told me this week, they say that, you know, at least they felt that they did something great. Mm. They stood up an independent country. They, they protected America. Now a lot of them feel robbed and betrayed by what's happened. And I think they're having a hard time mentally dealing with it. I mean, my response to them, who some of them I know quite well, is, well, the mission to protect America actually worked. There was no major terror attack in 20 years. So that worked. The rest of it, okay, yes, it crumbled at the end. Wow. And just ending on that note, PTSD, you know, thinking about Canada and all the immigrants that have come here. I mean, we had to stop our planes a while ago in comparison to the States. You have an understanding of, you know, ISIS-K and, and the Taliban that I don't think many of people in our country really do. Uh, what, what would be your your wisdom and guidance for us of, of welcoming them, but being sensitive to what they've just gone through here in Canada? Well, I mean, I think that Afghans are going to have a hard time all over the world being resettled. They're, they're going to lose some of their culture, and I think they probably think it's going to be easier than it is, but they're making those choices for the children. And I think the least that we can do is be charitable and understanding. And don't forget that, I mean, some of these people were interpreters with Canadian troops, American troops, and others, and uh, they saved Canadians. Mm. We are just not doing an act of charity here. I mean, these people fought shoulder to shoulder with Western troops and NATO forces that were in that, that country. And Canadians, no, no matter what you think of immigration, and I know some people are uncomfortable with what Prime Minister Trudeau has done or what Biden is doing or what, uh, you know, Boris Johnson here in the UK probably has not taken in as many refugees as he, as he could and should, uh, but he is taking in some. Um, I, I think, you know, where's your honor? Where's your loyalty to people that helped you and looked after you when you were on the ground and people could not have survived there? Canadian troops and others would not have been able to survive there without these people who risked their lives. They just didn't get paid a salary, but they risked their lives trying to help Afghanistan and trying to help foreign troops in Afghanistan uh, succeed against the Taliban. They risked their life to keep you alive, right? You had some pretty close calls when you were over there. Yeah, I mean, we we often, you know, traveled with interpreters, but we, we often would just be embedded with U.S. forces as well. But I worked out of Kabul and we would do stories with, our, with translators and uh, fixers, as we call them, the locals. Um, who took their lives into their own hands by being with us. And they were always worried about would we show them, like they never wanted to be on camera. They never wanted us to use their names, to interview them, to show them. Um, and now a lot of those lists have been handed over to the Taliban. And I don't know what they're going to do. to them. The Taliban say there's not going to be any retro retribution, uh, but we're already hearing stories that there are. I, I think that that will get worse as this unfolds in the coming weeks and months. And unfortunately, years uh, under under the Taliban. But I mean, American troops, the, these guys, you know, there were local Afghan army and then there were local Afghan sort of National Guard. And some of them were pretty, pretty tough. And they fought with the Americans, helping the Americans. And I've heard great praise and respect from U.S. soldiers who, you know, risked their lives and the, the, these people came through for them. They've left everything behind. They've, they have nothing. 
They've left everything behind. A lot of them have left with backpacks, um, you, you know, with not, not much more than a backpack with some basic things from their homes. They fled with their kids, their families. I mean, if we don't have empathy for them, I, I can't imagine who we have empathy for. So, we, you know, they, they deserve our respect. And any way we can, we, we can, what we can do to, to thank them or help them, right? So thank you again, David, for talking about the story. Yeah, appreciate this. No, it's, it's good to get some clarity. I think, uh, you know, the news headlines are dominated with uh, the casualties and, and uh, the mess of, uh, of what's transpired with, with the states and whatnot. But just, yeah, on, the, on that ending note there about the empathy and, and you know, what, what it looks like going forward, I think that's what we don't see in the media so much as we should. Appreciate you. No worries, man. Thanks. Oh, so good. Dana Lewis, always well-spoken and uh, well-versed in the Middle East. We're going to link some important news events over the past 20 years to help you stay up to speed further on the Afghanistan crisis. And I'm actually going to be also linking to something that one of my colleagues at Life 100.3 did. Todd Gale, a couple weeks ago, chatted with a pastor from the Afghan Church of the GTA. You want to check that out. It's pretty short, about seven minutes, a little bit shorter than this. And they talk about testimony, how this pastor came to Christ in a very Islamic-dominated country, and further what it's like for him, you know, from a faith perspective. So definitely give that a listen if you can. Next week, I promise we will get to Amanda Diaz. She's the CEO and founder of Fetch. We're going to talk about tech. We're going to talk about how this app allows you to get the items from the store that you want delivered to your house. It kind of operates like an Uber Eats, and this is really taking off, not just in Toronto, but she's soon going to be moving to New York. We'll find out more about that. The product that she developed, why she turned down going to Oxford to do this, and how she remains grounded in her faith in an industry that you can be tempted to cut corners very easily. Amanda Diaz is next week. In the meantime, Culture at a Crossroads. We are on Facebook and Instagram. We also have davidmanmedia.com where you can find all the show notes, catch up on episodes, and just really stay up to date with what's going on with Culture at a Crossroads. So until next week, I'm David Mann. Thanks for listening.